Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. This morning, we're honored to have Shane Hips with us on campus. He'll be, he'll be here all week as uh, pastor in residence. When I was pastor in residence uh, a couple of years ago, I, I maybe had like three different appointments and gatherings on campus, and I noticed Shane is booked from now till uh, the end of the week, so I hope you get a chance to really uh, appreciate what he has to share with us. He's a gifted person. I've had the privilege of knowing Shane as a student of mine, as a pastoral intern and member of the congregation of which I led in Pasadena. I know him now as a colleague, as a fellow minister, as a friend, and someone, someone from whom I continue to learn much, as I always have. Shane is the lead pastor of Trinity Mennonite Church in Glendale, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix, where he lives with his wife, Andrea, and their two-year-old daughter, Harper. He has an MDiv from a Master of Divinity from Fuller Seminary. He's a much sought-after speaker and author, and this week will be presenting themes from his book, The Hidden Power of the Electronic Church, How Media Shapes Faith, the Gospel, and the church. Shane went from a Porsche ad guy driving fast cars to a Mennonite pastor. Go figure. Today, we hope to hear in his faith story why he blames the dangerous cocktail of God's call and the draw of Anabaptist faith for his spiritual whiplash. I also want to thank Terry, my wife, who's uh, helping lead worship this morning. Thank you, Terry, for being with us as well. And now let us uh, prepare ourselves uh, both to sing and to hear Shane with a, a prayer. Let us pray. Living God, come to us in the glory of your awesome power. Come to us in the daring humility of your wondrous love. In this time together, let new life course through our veins new love bind us together, and a new vision inspire us to follow you. Christ, be our light. Shine in our hearts. Shine in all who are gathered here. Amen. Let us join together in singing Longing for the Light from the Sing the Journey Green Hymnal, page 54. And please stand. Longing for light, we wait in darkness. Longing for truth, we turn to you. Make us your own, your holy people. Light for the world to see. Christ, be our light. Shine in our hearts, shine through the dark.
<laughs> it is fantastic to be here. Thank you so much, Bob, for the invitation. Um, I am uh, not a Mennonite by background. I, I'm a late convert to this brand of faith, and uh, I pastor a church in Phoenix, Arizona, where there are a lot of historic Mennonites, and so you should know my being here, I'm looking forward to getting my papers stamped or, I don't know, whatever you do to, like, get official. But apparently I wasn't official until I came to Goshen, and I'm hoping to be official now. Someone in my church told me, after I was really excited and I kind of said, hey, I'm going to be official, he said, well, no, 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 you're not official until you go to Newton also. So apparently there's like a Newton thing. I, anyway, I don't know. I'll figure it out eventually. Uh, Bob told me that one of the things that he would like me to share this morning to kind of frame my week here was a little bit about my story. Um, and I think uh, mostly because my story is perhaps a little bit unusual. I have a really, really mundane uh, coming to faith story. It's totally pedestrian. You know, I, I was like fifth grade. I went to a church camp. I was in an evangelical kind of a church. Um, heard a couple of testimonies, accepted Jesus as my savior, and pretty much was like a continuation of what I was already doing because I was in a Christian home, and you're all bored and yawning, uh, and you should be. So that's the deal. Like, I, I didn't really have that interesting of a faith story. The, the place where it got interesting for me uh, was when I started to discover my call. <laughs> and this is where uh, the only image that comes to me is that of whiplash. So I went from, as Jim alluded to, an ad guy to uh, <laughs> driving Porsches to a Mennonite pastor. And, uh, and I admit that doesn't sound um, like a logical progression <laughs> at all. And uh, one of the things that I've learned is that God really isn't interested in logical progressions. He does very strange and unusual things. So let me, let me share with you how that happened, and then that will frame a little bit um, what I hope you'll hear as if you're in any of the classes or if you hear any of the other chapels uh, that I'll be doing, uh, you'll kind of know some of the framework from this morning. So here's the deal. I'm in college. I am um, trying to imagine what this is like. I'm wondering what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I know it's hard to imagine that in this stage of your life, but anyway, uh, bear with me. So I'm, I'm actually pretty stressed about it. I've tried a bunch of different things. I've looked into different things. I've talked to different mentors who are involved in different kinds of uh, careers and professions. I, I'm not kidding. I just, how did that happen? I just broke your stage. <laughs> I'll leave that there. I probably shouldn't be on that step. That's no good. That's dangerous. Anyway, so um, I'm all stressed out. I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life. And nothing, I'm coming up with nothing. I'm coming up short. And so along comes, uh, I'm, I'm at home on Christmas break. And a friend of mine's dad is a, really high up in an ad agency. And I'm kind of explaining to him my quandary. And he says, hey, um, you know, what are you studying in college? And I said, well, I'm a double major in psychology and speech communications, which is like a really sophisticated way of saying I'm undecided. Um, <laughs> so any of, you, any of you who know like speech majors or psych majors, they're fooling you. They're really just undecided. They don't really know what else to do. Um, it's true. I can tell. Some of you are nodding your heads. Uh, anyway, so the point is, uh, he says, hey, well, you'd make, uh, I think you'd be really good in advertising. Why don't you come down to my office next week, and we'll, and we'll kind of show you around, and I'll introduce you to some people. And so what do I do? I go down to the office, and I walk in, and this place is the coolest place I've ever seen. I feel like I'm in like a frat house. This is like the, the frat house for like adults who don't really want to grow up. And so everybody's wearing whatever they want. 
and uh, people are like in one conference room, people are watching a movie. They're like kind of break just watching a movie. I guess you can do that. And uh, all the conference rooms had different themes. So like one was like a bar and uh, literally there's like alcohol and stuff in, in this bar. And then another was a basketball court and then another was a barn, like a barn theme. This is in like an urban city, so I know for all of you this is not that interesting, but for us urbanites, that was like, wow, a barn, how interesting. So the, the chairs, <laughs> the chairs had these like cow print chair patterns with tails sticking out of them, and, and the, uh, the conference table was this, uh, was a trough uh, with actual feet in it and like a glass top, and so these like hip young urbanites would like come and sit down and be like, yeah, we're in a barn, we're totally cool, we're totally ironic. And, uh, and that's what you try and be in advertising, is you're always trying to be more hip and interesting and unusual than the next person. So anyway, I see all this and I go, yes, this is for me. I could survive this. This would be fun and interesting and creative people. And so I, uh, I didn't want to do the suit and tie, gray business world. And so anyway, I go in and I, I get hired. I apply for the job after I graduate. And it's everything I thought it would be. So I'm, we're going to like great fancy meals with these clients. I'm going to exotic locations to TV shoots. And, um, and I'm, I'm literally like, I get put on the Porsche account eventually. So we get to like, part of our job is we have to drive these cars so that we can advertise them better, right? So like they had to organize these ride and drive things where we get in professional drivers and race around these racetracks. And it was awesome. It was, it was everything I thought it would be. I'm well paid, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, it's creative, it's interesting, and to top it all off, nobody in advertising goes to church. Almost nobody believes in God. If they do, it's nominal at best. So what I am in the middle of is not only the greatest place for me, it's like a, a mission field, right? I'm informal missionary to this world of godlessness, and, uh, and what an opportunity for a very pious Christian like myself. <laughs> and, uh, and in the evangelical world, which is what I came out of, that's a really big deal, right? You, you, want, you got a scorecard of how many people you're going to save and convert, and so this is like, this is gold. So anyway, um, everything was going great until... Um, the weather started changing in my soul. If any of you know anything about meteorology, a storm front emerges when two different air pressure systems collide and intermix. And I had an experience of two different air masses colliding in my soul and intermixing. And it began to create a storm inside me. So the first air mass, we'll call this the high pressure front, it came in from the north, um, and this high pressure front was, um, it's what happened when I started to have conversations with people about faith. So over the years I'd had several conversations with these kind of urban, postmodern, hip, edgy people, and one of the things I found is, in my evangelical worldview, it, was, it mattered more than anything else that I get an individual to agree with what I believe. So the evangelical kind of framework, the scorecard was get individuals to believe like you believe and then you get them into heaven. So I was essentially arguing and having conversations and debates and they were very engaged in the conversations. They weren't in any way bothered by it. They wanted to debate and talk and 
the more I talked with them, the more I discovered my approach to faith had absolutely no traction with these people. I would have these conversations and I'd get in these really engaging debates and I'd have all my apologetical tools with me and, and I would try to be convincing them and, the, and they would kind of go, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Like they weren't even antagonistic, but they could care less what I believed. And they didn't really care themselves what they believed. For them, beliefs were like an ornament. They're a decoration. That's, a, that's all they really were. And, and so they, they were just sort of like, literally it was like trying to nail jello to a wall for me to get them to believe much of anything. And I was just, I was totally at a loss. I, I realized that my approach to faith was inadequate. The other thing I learned about them, though, that was really interesting was they didn't care so much about beliefs. What they wanted to know was, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, how does what you believe actually change the world for other people here and now? I don't really care how your belief changes your world when you die. I want to know how it changes everyone else's world while you're here. And I thought, hmm, that's an irrelevant question, because <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> anyway, so that was the first storm front. My faith tradition was inadequate to contend with the shifting culture. Here's the second one. This is the low-pressure front, which I believe comes from the south. I don't really know where it comes from. Anyway, low-pressure system. This one, um, this happened in my church. So I'm in a congregationalist church. We decide we're going to do something revolutionary. It's never been done before in the history of the world. We are going to study the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> you laugh, but I am not kidding. I have never done this before. In the evangelical world, we bounce over the Sermon on the Mount. I knew it was in there. I'm pretty sure Jesus said it. But other than that, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. So we decided we're going to spend like six months, we're preaching on it, we're reading books, Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, we're in small groups, we're discussing, we're debating, and it was revolutionary for me. All of a sudden, I realized that the biggest block of teachings in the Bible, of Jesus' teachings in the Bible, the person who I claim to follow, his, his teachings, I learned that I didn't care about half the things he cared about. I wasn't interested in what he was interested in. What I learned was Jesus didn't spend a whole lot of time making sure that people believed exactly as I believed individually. He spent a whole lot of time saying, here's how we're going to try and act in the world. This is a way of life. And, uh, and it's for this world, not just the next world. Okay, that was earth-shaking for me. So, and of course, you can see then this tension begins to emerge of, okay, these people don't care about my experience of faith. My experience of faith, as I read Jesus, isn't frankly what I thought it was. I'm in trouble. This storm front began to emerge. And the other thing I learned about the Sermon on the Mount is following Jesus comes with a cost. The, the actual gospel comes with some kind of a cost to the way you live your life. That was revolutionary. For me, the gospel was just about believing something different and, and then not, not having sex or swearing so much. And uh, that was salvation. Um, so this was really, really crazy to me. So anyway, and one of the things we learned as we discussed in these small groups was one of the greatest threats to the gospel, to this kind of a gospel, was consumer culture. And so I... Uh, 
you know, for most of us, that's kind of an interesting academic exercise. We go, hmm, interesting, consumer culture, yes. I can see how that would be a threat to the gospel. And of course, I thought that very elegantly. And then I walked into work the next day, and I looked around, and I looked at the things I was working on, and I suddenly realized it was like before my eyes, my office transformed into like a boiler room, and I realized I was the guy shoveling coal into the furnace that is the engine of consumer culture. I was the guy working in advertising, trying to convince you to buy things that you didn't need and you didn't know you wanted. I was the guy trying to generate needs in you that you didn't know you had, but apparently, now that I'm here, you do have. And my gospel was a counterfeit gospel. I did offer good news, but it was the good news of a Porsche. So with your mundane life, which is bad news, and you don't have enough sex, freedom, or power, I, I offer that. You just have to buy a Porsche, and you'll get all the sex, freedom, and power you want. It'll just cost you about $100,000. <laughs> so my, my gospel came with a cost also. <laughs> it's a little different kind of cost. <clears throat> so I had, a, I had a crisis, a huge crisis of conscience in which this world that I loved, that it was well-rewarded, that I was enjoying, I realized was basically me spending 70 hours a week promoting a counterfeit gospel that was antithetical to my most deeply held beliefs. So I had to leave. And uh, that was traumatic. And I, I fought God tooth and nail on this one. Here's, um, I'm going to jump ahead because the, the, the series of events that lead to what's next are entirely too intricate and complicated. I'd be happy to talk to you offline if you're interested in this. But through a series of unexpected events and unexpected uh, uh, conversations, I landed in a very unexpected place. I was in seminary, and I was at a Mennonite church. <laughs> and here's how that happened. Um, I left advertising not knowing what I wanted to do. But I knew that I cared about God and the church and theology, and so I thought, I'll just go study. I didn't really want to be a pastor. And the second thing I knew is as I was searching, I was on this search, I discovered through like a textbook. I never even heard of the Mennonites. I discovered in a history book about this little group of people called the Mennonites who apparently their entire faith tradition is rooted in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, and I decided I, I needed to be mentored by these people. I needed to learn how to live the way they live. Now, I wasn't so clear on the, the plain coats and the bonnets, which literally, those are, that's all I saw in the books, was plain coats and bonnets. It was like written in the 70s, and they were apparently looking back in time. But we, we arrive in California. Again, I don't even know that Mennonites are like, you know, that there's a Mecca or that they're located. I just assume Mennonites are like Lutherans, right? They're just everywhere. So, so we arrive in California, and, and uh, my wife and I literally look up in the yellow pages. for We're looking for a Mennonite church. And... Uh, for students, Yellow Pages, it's like, it's like the internet, only it's smaller, <laughs> it's less efficient. And really, I mean, you're not going to find a Mennonite church on the internet, right? So, and of course, they weren't at that time. It was Jim's church. They were not on the internet. So we literally look in the Yellow Pages, find one Mennonite church. It's like a mile from where I'm studying. I'm like, sweet, let's show up. So we dress in like our most plain attire, kind of like I'm dressed now. <laughs> Andrea dons some bonnet she got at some shop, and... And we show up and look like idiots. Um, no, I'm not. We didn't do that. Actually, we really did dress, though. We were like, is this, is this going to be okay? Does this look too flashy? Is this? Yeah. So anyway, we show up, and everybody looks you know, uh, almost as cool as I do. And um, so, so anyway, what he, the reason I say all this is 
When we landed in that community, and Jim Brenneman at that time was the pastor. He had planted that church. That community and Jim became a mentor for Andrea, my wife and I, in how to reinvent our faith. And that is not a small process. That is a process where your foundations shake to the ground and you birth something utterly different. And it reminds me of birth. It's painful and messy and difficult and straining. And it was so powerful for me. And that community became an incubation pod for my discovering my sense of call as a pastor. Jim Brenneman was immensely instrumental in that process. And uh, he is just an amazing leader and mentor of, of people in the church. So you're, you're blessed to have him. So anyway, <clears throat> that's sort of my story. And not long after that, I accepted a call to be a pastor of a Mennonite church. When I tell this story, it sounds so clean, so put together, such a natural narrative arc. <laughs> oh, man. If you actually step back into the story... If I imagine what it was like in the middle of those four years of learning and growing and changing, it was turmoil, darkness, depression, sadness, frustration, fear, anxiety. Oh, it was exhausting. I didn't want any more of this. And the dominant image that came to my mind that, that, that led me through this period of time in my life was not some inspirational story in Scripture. It was an one experience in Scripture, one image. And that image was Jacob wrestling with God by the river. Jacob wanders along, encounters the river, starts wrestling God in the middle of the night, all through the night. At the end of it, God, I guess, touches his hip with his finger, pops his hip out of joint, gives him a new name, and on he goes. It's kind of a weird story. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> what, what, what was so evocative, though, for me, when I read that story... What immediately came to my mind was like my middle school days when like friend, we would have people would get in fights. I don't know if that happened in Mennonite places, but we would fight a lot in non-Mennonite places because violence was okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, and if you've ever seen people wrestle like a schoolyard fight, it is, it is this, you know, ugly, chaotic, asymmetrical, it, it's nothing like the movies, you know, there's not these like clear ballet motions of punching and, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. This is just ugly and messy, and there's just this like storm of dirt and dust and elbows flying, and, and faces are beat red and straining for dominance and spit and blood, and it's just messy and dirty, and that was my soul. That was the condition of my soul. And it was just, it was just a perfect image for me. And I didn't know it at the time, but the outcome was very similar for me as well. God didn't poke my hip out of joint. He gave me whiplash, so I have like a neck injury now in my soul. <laughs> and he gave me a new name. He gave me a new identity. My name went from being Portia Ad Guy to Mennonite Pastor. And if you think that's odd, you should talk to my friends in advertising. <laughs> they have no category for what happened to me. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh, poor guy. <laughs> and I feel that way about me too. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I share this story, not just to frame what I'll be talking about so that you know what I'm informed by, but I share it because I think it's, I think it's a powerful 
archetype for how most of how God interacted with his people in scripture seems to function. God is in the business of spiritual whiplash. Look at Moses. Look at Abraham. Look at Elijah. Look at Elisha. Look at Jonah. Look at Paul. Every one of these people went through a massive whiplash. Now, some of those people were more willing than others. Elisha, very willing. Elijah comes up, taps him on the shoulder. He's like, done, let's do it. I'm going to burn everything. Where do you want to go? Paul, not so much. Requires a pretty hard confrontation. Jonah, not so much. I was on the Jonah-Paul side of things. And my great encouragement, and I'm just one in a long line of people who, uh, who had this experience. And my guess is, some of you may have already had this experience. Some of you may have yet to have this experience. My great hope and prayer is that our hearts remain malleable. And the reason for that is, what doesn't bend, breaks. What doesn't bend, breaks. Amen. Thank you, Shane. Um, as was stated, Shane will be on campus uh, speaking in a variety of different classes, and there'll be other opportunities for you to engage him. Um, one place would be tonight at Campus Worship Night. He's going to talk uh, very briefly uh, about living a vibrant Christian life as a college student. He'll have a little bit of input, but it's meant to be more of an informal dialogue, so please bring your questions um, along. Also, if you're interested in some of the themes of his book, um, we do have it available in the bookstore um, so that as you get in contact with him and, and some of the other messages or talks that he will be presenting, um, and if you want to know more, we have that in the bookstore. And now as you go from this place, go being rejuvenated, energized with malleable hearts. Amen.